Hi, I'm Dirk Friel, co-founder of Training Peaks, and you're listening to the Training Peaks Coachcast. I'll be sitting down with expert endurance coaches and amazing athletes, each with special stories to tell. At its heart, Training Peaks is about helping you create the best journey possible towards your endurance goals. We hope these stories inspire you to get out there, train with purpose, and never be afraid to sign up for that next big challenge. Today, we have a special sprint episode of the CoachCast, as we had the fortune to interview Ian Boswell, who is fresh off a big win at the Unbound Gravel 200 race in Emporia, Kansas. You might say that Ian is now the king of gravel, as he has taken his racing career in a new direction after having raced on the road at the world tour level for seven years. Five of those years were spent at Team Sky, and then he raced for Team Katusha from 2018 through 2019. Once Ian retired from pro road racing, he went to work at Wahoo Fitness and is now a member of the Wahoo Frontiers Gravel Squad. I hope you enjoy the show and learn a few things that just might help you in your next big adventure. Ian Boswell, thank you so much for joining me today on the CoachCast. Thanks for having me. It's, uh, it's good to speak to you again. I think we've met one time before. Maybe back in 2014, I think I came out to uh, Tour of Colorado and I think we met, but yeah, nice to speak to you again. Were you on uh, Team Sky? I was, yeah. And we, um, I think we did a ride in Boulder after the race. Then we came out to, to Training Peaks and I think we did a maybe your company lunch ride or something like that. Yeah, I do remember that. Those are good times. I think Rafa kind of supported that. And uh, I know we had Froome and Port in our pain cave and doing some indoor workouts at the Training Peaks office. Those are, those are some cool times. So yeah, that's awesome. Um, you just came off a really big victory at the Unbound Gravel 200, they say, but it's actually 206 miles. Um, how's it feel to be the king of gravel? Um, yeah, I mean, it feels a bit strange. You know, it's my it was my second kind of big event and... Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, it was it was an awesome event. It was just fun to fun to race, and you know, such a good group of guys up in up in the front rolling through. Um, yeah, I don't wouldn't by any means say I'm the king of gravel. I'm kind of still still new to this, but uh, you know, <laughs> I definitely have a definitely have a history of racing, and you know, raced on the road, and it's it's cool to see that a lot of those same kind of skills and, and traits do translate over to to gravel. Um, fairly well you know it was, it was kind of surprising that some of the the other world tour riders weren't up there with us or the current world tour riders but um yeah i guess there there are some unique quirks to to gravel racing that maybe don't translate well to to people who are training specifically for road racing at, at the world tour level yeah it's interesting um you know was was unbound your longest ride ever or race ever um close i actually did my own 200 mile ride i think it was late may of last year uh, when i knew that unbound wasn't going to happen i i went out and ted king was doing his diy gravel series so i went out and did a, a 200 mile ride but i think it was maybe just over 200 miles so yeah i mean hands down the yeah those two rides stand out as by far the longest ride i've, I've ever done you know i haven't done uh i could probably count on, on one hand the amount of times i've ridden my bike over seven hours right well, it may be the highest training stress score TSS ride you've ever done. I, I don't know. But, uh, you know, supposedly it was 540 TSS. It was 10 hours and 15 minutes, 206 miles. 
average of 247 watts, normalized of 280 watts, and that's 4.1 watts per kilo. And you know, I can only do that myself for like six minutes. Really? <laughs> yeah, I, I guess I haven't heard the all the numbers broken broken out before, but um, yeah, I mean, it, it's just you know, it's a huge effort for you know for everyone out there racing. You know, not, not just myself, but you know, people who are also taking you know, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen hours. You know, it's just a huge burn of of energy for everyone, and you know, we can get into that. But it's just it's it's continually fascinating to me what the human body can do and how we can, you know, process energy and just, you know, the bike is such an amazing machine at allowing us to get so much out of ourselves. You know, it'd be, I mean, some people can do these ultra marathon runs, but it seems like the bike is the ultimate way to kind of burn a lot in, in a relatively efficient way. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, you mentioned ultra running and ultra running, ultra runners don't tend to go above threshold or even near threshold, you know, if they're doing a 10 hour race and here you are, tell us about the amount of time that you're at threshold. I mean, even that first few hours, you know, what were the, what was the hardest hour of the race and what type of efforts were you seeing relative to your threshold? You know, I, I wasn't actually focused. I mean, just because the nature of, of gravel racing, you know, it's just more difficult to look at, you know, in my case, to look at my Wahoo and see, you know, power, speed, heart rate, all that. Um, just because, you know, you're, you're more focused on where you're going and not getting a flat tire. But after, you know, so many years of racing at a high level, you definitely kind of know when, you know, when you're over threshold, when you're under threshold. Um, but I was very aware from the beginning, just of, you know, burning matches. And, you know, even early on, you know, I wasn't sitting at the front of the bunch, you know, sitting, you know, a few, you know, I don't know, maybe 50, 80 riders back, um, and just the nature of gravel racing, you know, things kind of space out more and you get more of a yo-yo effect after the corners just because, you know, people can't go full speed into the turns. So just being a little bit cautious about not fully sprinting out of turns, you know, and you see this, you know, so much in, in pro road racing that oftentimes what, you know, is the most fatiguing is these sprints through these towns and you're constantly, you know, making these surges. And, you know, as a coach, you would well know that those are oftentimes the most, you know, damaging to, to someone of my physiology who tends to, you know, thrive more on these long endurance efforts. You know, the, the short, quick spikes are really what, what take it out of me. Right. Yeah. So how would you describe your training coming into the race? You know, what's like a, well, let's, let's back up actually, you, you know, you were seven years at the world tour level. Your last year at the world tour was in 2019. Did you take time off after that? Or have you always been really focused in your training, even after your quote, you know, retirement from road racing? Um, have you always just kind of kept kept at it? Yeah, I mean, so you know, I stopped in in I guess my last road race was in April, sorry, March of, of 2019. I crashed and had a you know a head injury, and you know, just you know, it was a long recovery process, and I didn't ride my bike for for several months um, just due to to lingering symptoms and kind of doctor's requests. So that was by far the longest period of time I'd ever gone without riding a bike. And then I kind of slowly kind of got back into it. But really since then, um, you know, I have not been, I've not been working with a coach. I haven't necessarily been following a, a strict training plan per se. Um, but you know, I have, I have coached other athletes and kind of helped people, you know, with, with training plans and it's the sports physiology side of, you know, bike racing has always been something that's fascinated me. And, you know, when I was on team sky, you know, I always made, 
made extra time to, you know, sit around and, and ask questions to, you know, someone like Tim Carrison or, you know, other coaches that I worked with. Cause it is, you know, it is one of the things that is just so interesting to me, the, the training side of it. Um, just having known the, the training I did, you know, during my time at the world tour, which, you know, is such a unique time in, in a cycling career because you have essentially an infinite amount of time to just put in volume. And, you know, it seems like more and more world tour teams, you know, you'd probably be able to speak to this, which I'm not sure if it's, if it's better or worse, but they're definitely increasing just the overall volume in which athletes are riding. You know, when I first went to the world tour, it seemed like, you know, a 20 to 23 hour week was a pretty big week, but you see a lot of riders now, you know, 28, 30, 35 hour weeks, you know, the, the overall volume in which world tour athletes are training is, is continually going up. Um, and I don't have that time anymore. You know, thankfully I have some of the residual kind of depth in, in my legs, but it's, um, you know, just trying to also make sure I enjoy, enjoy riding my bike and, you know, trying to maximize the the time I do get out there. And, you know, another thing is I, I live in Northern Vermont where the weather is very unpredictable and winters are long. So, you know, it's hard to put in, you know, a 20 hour week and, you know, really anything before April is almost not impossible, but um, you're going to be out there in some pretty, some pretty harsh conditions. Yeah. So obviously you're, you're training indoors a lot, um, you know, up through April. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I do a lot of um, indoor training and I tend to, you know, really just through the winter months, just try to stay on top of, you know, some intensity and just kind of really keep moving, you know? So if that means, you know, go for a backcountry ski in the morning before work. And then if I can jump on, on my kicker in the evening after work, even if it's just something of, you know, like an hour or, you know, there's some, some workouts that I do on the Sufferfest that I kind of just continually, you know, workouts that I know I like, I know I enjoy them. I know I'm going to, you know, get something out of them. Um, you know, even if, like I said, just 45 minutes sometimes, and, you know, it's enough to just kind of keep you at a certain level that when the weather does turn, you're, you're ready to get back to, you know, a reasonable level of, of training and, you know, kind of ramping up the volume. Right. I, th- I think it's awesome to hear from a winner that quote unquote, you know, has the day job and is not doing the 20 plus hour weeks. It sounds as if, I mean, what are you averaging, um, you know, in, in your, let's say the last, you know, four weeks or so leading into the race, what was that last month look like? I mean, the last month I've definitely made some exceptions to, to try and ride a little bit more. And even, you know, speaking to, to some of my colleagues at Wahoo and like, you know, they've scheduled a meeting on a day that I was hoping to do a four or five hour ride. I'm like, Hey, can we move this please? Like, you know, just before Unbound, I just want, I just need a couple, you know, a couple weeks of, you know, some increased training. And they were obviously incredibly, you know, open to the idea of me skipping some meetings and doing some additional training rides midweek. Um, but, you know, I try to get, you know, at least 15 hours a weekend of, of riding, you know, and that seems to be relatively feasible, you know, most, most times of the year, you know, oftentimes in the winter that transitions to, you know, maybe half of that time is, is spent on backcountry skis or Nordic skis. And then, you know, supplementing that with some, some indoor riding, but, you know, I've done a couple of weeks that were over 20 hours, but those kind of were in very unique situations where I went out to California and did a, a four day bike tour with, with Colin Strickland and Pete Stetna. And then I went down to Mexico in April um, on my wife's spring break and did not a ton of actual riding, but I did a couple, two long days, which uh, make it awfully easy to, to add up to, over 20 hours. 
Nice. You're speaking my language. I do a lot of backcountry skiing and cross-country skiing, so I definitely hear where you're coming from. What were the, maybe the, the in the last like three weeks, what were your longest rides? You know, uh, your like top two or three longest rides in, uh, in, in hours. Yeah. So I didn't do anything over five and a half hours. Um, and that wasn't by choice. That was just kind of by circumstance. Wow. I was hoping to do one longer ride, but I just never, I just never had time for it. So I did the, the rule of three gravel race in Bentonville, Arkansas. I think that was two weeks, exactly two weeks before unbound. Um, and it was a hundred miles, like five and a half hours. And I was, you know, before that event, I was, you know, told myself, okay, cool. If I finish and I feel all right, you know, I'll go spin for another, you know, hour or 90 minutes, you know, maybe two hours after just super easy just to try to get in that volume. Um, but I finished and I was pretty shattered. So I, I didn't wind up riding at all. Um, <laughs> came back home for a couple of days. And, and again, was like, oh, I'll try to get in one, one long ride. And I just wasn't able to scheduling wise, you know, just with work and, and traveling and, and life, I didn't, didn't have the opportunity to get in that, you know, five or six hour ride that I was hoping for. Um, but thankfully once I was down in, um, in Emporia, Lawrence Tendam messaged me the Wednesday prior to the event. And he's like, Hey man, let's go do a hundred mile ride and we'll do the last 60 or so miles of the course. And, you know, I was like, that's perfect. You know, I know from <laughs> my world tour days and just, you know, grand tour racing that you kind of have to keep your, you have to keep this, especially in a long event, you have to kind of keep your body rolling. You know, I'd taken some easy days. We had some, you know, photo shoots and video stuff. So I wasn't able to ride, you know, as consistent as I had wanted to while I was there, but we did this hundred mile ride and, you know, sure enough, I felt so much better after doing that hundred mile ride. And it wasn't really until hour two or three that I started to actually feel, feel decent. And then from, from there up into the event, I kind of, you know, shut it down and, and took it easy running into the event. But, um, yeah, I mean, that was the big unknown for me. It was like, how am I going to, how am I going to feel at hour nine or 10? Um, but at the same time, you know, it's similar with triathletes. It's similar with cyclists. You know, you don't do a 21 day training block to get ready for the Tour de France. You don't do a, you know, huge swim, huge bike and marathon, to get ready for an Ironman, you kind of space it out. And, you know, you do these, you're consistent enough and you do, you know, maybe the intensity one day and the volume the other day, and it kind of adds up. But um, yeah, it, it was a big question mark <clears throat> knowing if I was, how I was going to feel after, you know, after hour six. And, you know, thankfully I, you know, fueled and hydrated properly that my body was able to, you know, kind of continually ride at that high level. But it was something that I was definitely concerned about, you know, just completely coming apart after seven hours on the bike. You mentioned nutrition and keeping the fuel going. What did that plan look like? And did it go to plan? Uh, I assume so, but what, what were your thoughts going into the race and how did it actually play out in terms of nutrition for you? Yeah, well, I didn't really have, you know, you know, I know some athletes had like actually calculated like how many calories they were going to take with them. And, you know, my thought was just like, I'm just going to take more than I need. So, you know, I, and, and this one thing that's actually changed dramatically since leaving the world tour is like really increasing carbohydrate consumption. Um, you know, you just, you know, I came through an era of, you know, team sky when there's kind of this, this fad of, you know, low carb training. And then you kind of get in this, you know, unfortunate cycle of like, all right, like, you know, you become so accustomed to operating at a, at a fairly high level without carbohydrates or, you know, with limited carbohydrates that it's not, not necessarily beneficial. Um, yeah, so I had, you know, every bottle that I had a total of six bottles were full of, you know, high carbohydrate 
you know, solution, you know, kind of this, I use beta fuel, but you know, there's other brands out there that make something similar, whether it's Morton or scratch labs came up with something similar. That's a, you know, a ratio of, of fructose to glucose. Um, so especially in the heat, a great way to get a lot of calories in. And then I ate goodness, probably 10 picky bars, which, you know, solid food and then a few, you know, some chews and some gels and a lot of water on top of that. You know, I, I finished with, you know, still food left in my pocket. Um, cause I said, I said, I'd rather have too much than, than not enough. And <laughs> I think the biggest thing is just, you know, having used fuel sources that I did, you know, that I trained with. And I think that that's something that you'd probably attest to as a coach that, you know, making sure you're practicing what you're going to race with, because the last thing you want to do is get into a race and be eating something or drinking something that you've never tried before. And, you know, lo and behold, it, it causes some, some GI distress. So you worked that strategy into any training rides leading into the race to, did you think about training the gut and that nutrition within your training itself? Um, not necessarily specifically, but there were a few rides that I, you know, I guess the rule of three was kind of like a good, a good test event. You know, that was two weeks out and I made sure I had all the same food there, you know, especially the, the drink mix, which I think is, could be the most challenging on, on people's gut. Um, so I did that and I did one other five hour ride or I was a hundred miles. It might've been just under five hours, um, a couple of days or maybe a week prior to going to rule of three and same thing, you know, I kind of brought all the same, the same snacks, but again, you know, five hours is very different than, you know, 10 hours you're doing almost, you know, double the amount of, of kilojoules burnt. So, you know, I tested it to a point, um, but not completely, you know, like I said, if I would have had the opportunity or time to do a, you know, six, seven hour ride, it would have been the ideal time to kind of test that fueling strategy. But I also just knew a little bit from that ride I did 12 months ago when I did my, my own little 200 mile ride that, you know, I came apart at the end there, um, how important it was to just like almost overfuel early on, because once you get behind at that, you know, at that length of event, you know, you're never really going to catch up. Right. Good point. What, what about the aid stations? What was your routine? I mean, how many aid stations are there and what was your routine as you came into them? Yeah. So there are, there are two like official aid stations and there's two neutral water spots, but at the neutral water spots, you know, you can't get outside assistance. Um, and those two aid stations were probably my biggest concern because I didn't, I'd never been there to the event and I didn't really know what was needed or kind of the time of in and out. So I <clears throat> tried to make it as simple as possible. I had a colleague from Wahoo who was there and, you know, I just made it super simple. You know, had we had a, a catastrophe, a, you know, a major mechanical or had to swap wheels, it would have been not the end of my race, but probably the end of being in the front group just because, you know, I was probably underprepared for, for those aid stations as far as mechanical work. But, you know, I really focused on the, you know, the simplicity of how can I get in and out as quick as possible. So the first aid station was at mile 68. And yeah, I just had a musette bag with, you know, the food I wanted to replace that I had eaten uh, two fresh bottles, a fresh hydration pack, and my buddy put some oil on my chain and I was out of there within probably less than, you know, 30, 40 seconds. Huh, um, nice. like I said, that all could have been derailed had I, you know, had a, had a major mechanical. And then, you know, thankfully same thing at the the second aid station, um, you know, had another Musette bag and I had, you know, just simple things to, you know, 
take any variables out of the equation. You know, I marked up my bottles, you know, so he knew what bottles were for which aid station, you know, aid station one, aid station two, I'd already pre-mixed them. You know, all he had to do was, you know, be there with, with some lube and, you know, refill my hydration pack from aid station one to aid station two. So I could, you know, get a, get a fresh one, um, some fresh water. Um, we also did stop at a neutral aid station at mile 125, um, just collectively within the group of us five up front. We decided that, you know, people were starting to run out of water. So we would stop there very briefly and we just filled up our, the bottles we had. And I noticed that a couple of athletes in that front group did have some type of hydration tab or, a, you know, a sachet with, with some mix. And I didn't bring that. Um, probably something I would have brought with me going back next year, just something to have, just in case you need to stop and fill up bottles, you could get some, some sort of carbohydrate and, you know, electrolytes in your bottles if you're just filling them up with water. Yeah. Wow. Any other lessons learned that you might change for next year? I would probably consider a bit more my nutrition plan and that's just how much I, I needed to bring. You know, like I said, I, I probably brought too much. Um, and it was my first, like I said, my first event of, of that length. Um, it's probably good to have a few things spare with you, but you know, I carried around a lot of food that I I didn't eat and also just really where, where you're going to locate it on your body. You know, you want it to be as easily accessible as possible. And, you know, one thing I always did when I was racing on the road was kind of organize my, my Jersey pockets based off of kind of enjoyment more than anything. You know, I knew my middle pocket was like, okay, when the race slows down and I have time, like this is the tasty stuff. I'm going to eat that so I can enjoy it and savor it. And, you know, the side pocket, one of them was like, okay, this is stuff I need to eat. And then the other pocket was like, this is like my oh shit pocket. Like the race is full on. I need something quick and easy and simple. Um, and I didn't, you know, I didn't really have that plan going into the race. So I would have probably just organized my nutrition a little bit better. So I knew where I knew where everything was and, and made it a little bit easier. Um, you know, not just be to not be fiddling around in my pockets, trying to find something that I wanted to eat rather. I was just kind of eating what I, what I had accessible. Funny, you talk about pockets and here we are in gravel and you have now bags. <laughs> I, I even saw Colin Strickland had his, I think he had a hydration bag like under his top tube, which was unique. Um, I assume you're, you're happy with the hydration pack and, and then what did you have in the bag on your top tube? Yeah, well, Colin and I had actually spoken about his idea of hydration pack back in March and I actually had something similar, um, but I didn't, ultimately I didn't use it because it was too challenging to refill my bag and then put it back in. So I, I opted to just run the, the Thule hydration pack on my back, which didn't, ultimately didn't seem like it was that much of a disadvantage. Um, you know, you are carrying the weight on your bike and Colin made a good point of, you know, rather than you carrying that weight, it makes more sense for your bike to be carrying that weight. So I think you will see more of that in the future with, you know, more hydration strapped to the bike rather than to the body. Um, but yeah, in the little kind of bento box or whatever you want to call it on the, on the top tube, that's where I had pretty simple food. That's where I just had like some gels and some blocks. Um, just because they're easy, you know, you could grab them later in the race, you know, so I carried those around all day and I think I finished and I still had two or three, you know, sleeves of, of chews in there. Huh. Um, and then throughout the race, you know, there's times when I would, you know, take a bite of a bar and I couldn't actually you know, finish it cause we hit a technical section and it became easy to kind of throw it in there. And it's very easy to remember, okay, you know, that food is in that, in that pocket right in front of you. And it's very easy to grab and then, you know, close it up and, you know, just keep riding. 
Wow, awesome. Yeah, I mean, it's so, so technical. Did did the technical aspect of it, was it more technical than you may have thought going into it? The technical sections were more, they definitely were more challenging than I had thought. You know, I live in Vermont where the most of the dirt roads are very pristine and hard pack and smooth and you, you don't have to worry about flat tires. Um, you know, I was just constantly trying to find the best you know, the best line to, to take, especially when we hit a few of these, you know, unmaintained roads, you know, you can very easily, you know, slice a sidewall or, you know, you know, puncture, however, you know, you hit something the wrong way. So it was just a fat, a matter of, you know, being a little bit more cautious in, in certain sections. And, you know, I think for me as well, just like trying to relax in those sections rather than be uptight because it's so easy to hit these kind of crucial points and really get stressed out. And then you, you know, all these lessons that you've learned, you've kind of thrown out the window, you start grabbing the bars too tight and you're, you know, braking too hard and you're locking up the wheels. And I think, you know, entering those crucial sections in the race, it's really important to, that's where it's most important to be relaxed and breathe and, you know, try and think clearly. And I guess, you know, another thing that I, I did consider throughout the race was like, you know, fueling with like quick carbohydrates before these intense sections, you know, one for the physical, you know, you know, providing glycogen to the muscles. But the other was just making sure your brain had enough carbohydrates to actually focus. Um, and I did one of the gels I did take later on in the race did have caffeine, which I was kind of wondering if it would be potentially harmful just with, you know, the high heat and heart rate. Um, but I really think that, you know, just the mental focus at that point in the race, you know, it probably was beneficial just to have a little bit of a caffeine boost just to be able to actually, you know, get some mental clarity in some of these technical sections. Cause there is a tremendous amount of, of focus, you know, riding at those speeds on, you know, some fairly rough roads. Absolutely. There are plenty of crashes as well. I mean, I know what Quinn Simmons crashed out, got stitches in his knee, um, keel Reinen, um, just completely broke a wheel were you caught behind any early crashes or were you ahead of them? Yeah, I was caught behind quite a few early, early crashes and flats. And, you know, as I said, my, my strategy was very much like to approach those sections with more calmness and ease rather than kind of aggression and, and force. Um, you know, so I oftentimes would kind of drift back through those sections, you know, almost sag climbing. Right. If, if that yeah. term works for, for gravel racing. Um, you know, just being able to pick my, to pick my own line and kind of follow where, where I thought was best to go. Um, you know, because ultimately in such a long event, you know, if you come out of there, you know, 20, 30 seconds behind the front group, you're probably going to catch back on. But if you have a flat, then, you know, that could take, you know, could take a minute, but it could take five minutes and then you're, you're completely out of the race. So, you know, just entering those sections calm and collected was, you know, I felt a, strategy that paid off, but you know, who knows, we could go back next year and it could be a completely different, you know, circumstance and conditions. And, you know, people could be listening to this podcast and realize like, Oh, well, Ian's kind of sitting at the back for these sections. We better hit it coming out of these sections. <laughs> well, that's the beauty of gravel, right? We, uh, it seems as if there's just shared knowledge. It's, it's not so aggressive, if you will, you know, more of, uh, help each other out is, uh, you know, I, I didn't never asked you why gravel, you know, why go from 
you know, you've won a grand tour stage in the Volta, you know, why go from road racing to, to gravel when there's so many other things you could do with your life? Yeah. Well, I mean, a lot of that just happened, just kind of came as a consequence of, of the crash I had and, you know, the subsequent concussion and just realizing that, you know, I, I wasn't willing to go back to, to world tour racing where the level of risk is a required, you know, trait. You have to, you know, if you're on a wet descent and someone's attacking, you kind of have right. to follow them. You can't, you can't sit up and tell your team, Hey, sorry, I just didn't feel comfortable, you know, following them today. And it's like, well, we can, you know, we can find someone else who will, um, and gravel, there's, you know, there's still an inherent risk of, you know, of crashing as we saw it unbound, but there's, you know, in my situation and, you know, having a full-time job, it's not like I need to win these events to, you know, pay a mortgage or, you know, put food on the table. It's, you know, it's very much, I'm doing it for fun and I, I can very much choose the level of risk that I'm willing to take. And I still love riding my bike. I love riding my bike fast and hard. And, you know, the, the joy of that is still there with, with gravel, but the level of risk is much more calculated personally. And I'm able to, you know, really kind of dictate the level of, of risk that I, I want to, and that I'm willing to take, which isn't always possible racing on the road at the world tour. Wow. I love these interviews because they help me so much. I'm racing steamboat gravel. Um, will you be there? I will. Yes. I'm looking forward to it. I, uh, actually where I was staying in Emporia, um, I was speaking to a few folks who were involved with the event and yeah, it sounds like it's a fun one. sounds like it's uh, much less technical and fast. So maybe more up my alley as far as, uh, you know, kind of the technical skills required, but I probably should, uh, if I'm going to try to perform, I should probably try to go to altitude before, which uh, probably won't happen trying to make it out to Colorado beforehand to, to acclimatize. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I've never done it before. Um, it's definitely higher altitude than Kansas, but you've been there, done that too. So, uh, um, thank you so much. Uh, Hey, what is your next race going to be? Yes. I'm actually heading next over to Kenya in Africa for the migration race, which is a four day gravel stage race in the, in the Masai Mara. It's, uh, yeah, something I'm really looking forward to again. It's at altitude. Um, and, you know, as much as it is a race, it's very Hey, there's your altitude up. training right there. <laughs> exactly. Yes. I'll, uh, maybe I'll stay a couple extra days over in Kenya and, and hike Kilimanjaro or something. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a four day stage race. And so I'm looking forward to heading over there. And, um, actually a few of the, the athletes who I'm racing over there, some of the African athletes, Wahoo is actually bringing them back to, back to the U S and they will be at SPT gravel as well. So, um, wow. yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to just seeing what, what the African race culture is, is all about and meeting some of the athletes over there and seeing their, their ability as well, because clearly we've seen, um, you know, the African athletes have, have dominated other endurance sports and, you know, with a, with a few, you know, tips and tricks, they might be, uh, the next hot thing in, in cycling. Yeah, absolutely. So cool. Thanks for sharing uh, so many great tips with us. Big congratulations, King of Gravel. I'll see you on the start line in Steamboat. Good luck uh, over in Africa. And um, yeah, just thank you. Thank you so much and big congrats. Yeah, thank you so much, Dark. Thanks for listening to the Training Peaks Coachcast. For more episodes, visit trainingpeaks.com slash podcasts. Please head on over to Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever you find your podcast to subscribe 
rate, or leave a review. Until next time, get out there, train with purpose, and never be afraid to sign up for that next big challenge. 